Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. I'm Oliver Hartwig and today I'm joined by three of my colleagues here at the Initiative. The wonderful Dr. Michael Johnston, the Hello. wonderful Dr. James Kirsten and the wonderful Dr. Matthew Birchall. And I've introduced you all with your titles because we want to talk about education. Now, Immanuel Kant, the great German well, Prussian philosopher who never left Königsberg in his lifetime. And it is Immanuel Kant, unfortunate name in English, but spelled with a K-A-N-T. He said enlightenment is the escape of men, and back then it was only men, from self-imposed immaturity. So, big question. But actually, what did he mean by that? And how does this relate to education? So the question for us today that we want to discuss is, what is education? What is it to us? How have we experienced it? How did our own education actually form our expectations of an education system? And so we're really privileged actually to have you all here today to discuss this with me because you come from very different education backgrounds. And so I thought it would be a good starting point of this conversation to really put our cards on the table and explain literally where you're all coming from. So I just want to ask you initially, Give us a 30-second overview of your education career. Where did you go to school? Where did you study? What did you study? And what did you take from it? But in 30 seconds, and we'll start with you, Michael. Okay, well, I went to primary school at Nio School in, in a middle-class suburb of Wellington. It was a very ordinary kind of primary school, such as was found all around the country at the time. Then I went to a very liberal secondary school, Onslow College. It was one of two schools in the country with no uniform at the time. And there I studied both science and humanities. So in my sixth form year, I taught chemistry, biology, <laughs> physics, mathematics, English and classical studies. And then I left school a year early because I was tired of school and went off to Victoria University. And again, I did a fairly eclectic science degree, which included psychology, mathematics, biology, musicology, a little bit more classical studies. I went to Australia to do my honours degree at Monash University in cognitive psychology and then on to Melbourne University where I did my PhD. Far too long spent in education really but but there you have it. Longer than 30 seconds but a long career. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> okay James. All right I'll try and do it in 30 seconds. So I, I come from a Canadian army family so I moved around a lot but here's the simplified version. My elementary school education was in Canada and it was largely bilingual so while I was in Montreal for example one day of school was in French the next day was in English. That was a very kind of liberal Canadian state elementary school. Then my family moved to England. I went to a conservative Anglican boarding school, all-male boarding school in the countryside of England, in southwest England, Dorset. Uh, I went on to Oxford University, Corpus Christi College, which is signed as the Pelican. I was telling someone today where I studied classics. So again, quite a traditional approach to education. And then I went to California to study with somebody who was a world expert in Athenian democracy. And I studied classics. I continued to study Greek history and classics. And I also studied political science. And I was exposed to a lot of really interesting statistical and sort of game theoretical work in political science, which I can't do myself, but I, it was great to be exposed to. And your PhD was from the US? Yeah, PhD was from Stanford, yeah. yeah. I Matthew? Went, I went to primary school at Coe Terrace in Auckland and enjoyed... I think what was a pretty classic free-range New Zealand childhood there, so I, I really just remember running around a lot, not so much on the academic side. And I then went to Parnell College, and I was uh, in the first year at Parnell, so it was a new school. Both of my brothers were, were grammar boys, and I didn't really want that rigid 
schooling system and I was, I was fortunate to be able to go to Parnell and that's when you know my interest in English literature and history really opened up and, and I loved my schooling there. Wanted to continue studying English actually. Went off to, to Scotland, University of St Andrews to study English literature and quickly became disenchanted and, and we can perhaps talk about that later on and moved over to history and international relations and it was towards the end of my degree there that, you know, history really started to become the dominant thing in my life and, and then went on to, to Cambridge to do a Master's in History of Political Thought and European Intellectual History and then from there PhD also at Cambridge. Right, and for the sake of completion, I went to school in Germany, in a not-so-flesh part of Germany, the rural area. I went to a traditional grammar school called Karl Humann Gymnasium. Gymnasium has nothing to do with the gym in Germany. It's actually a grammar school. I took A-levels in English and history and mathematics and social sciences, then studied economics and business administration, didn't like it at the time because I had problems with economics methodology, didn't find it particularly worthwhile. Uh, left out of frustration with the economics department and did a PhD in law instead and discovered I was still an economist and ended up here. So, right, for the sake of completion, we've completed that round and we discovered that we all have our PhDs from universities outside New Zealand. That's true. Actually, Oliver, just before we continue, can you please pronounce for us the full name of the German leaving certificate from school. The it's one of those wonderfully long German words. <laughs> it is actually a very short German word, and it's actually of Latin origin. It's called the Abitur. I, I saw it written down the as the Abitur der Schnichnotte, or something along <laughs> those lines. I probably totally mispronounced it. <laughs> no, actually, it is uh, das Zeugnis der Allgemeinen Hochschulreife. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it's colloquially called the Abitur. Abitur actually, um, you guys had Latin. Ab ihre. Yeah, yeah. So you leave, you go, you go into the world. Abitur means just you, you're done. You, you can go now. Um, and what's but it's the rest? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the rest. But actually, the, the real official name, I believe, is Zeugnis der Allgemeinen Hochschulreife, which means it's a certificate proving your general high school readiness. Aha. Right. And that was the idea. The idea was actually you learn enough at secondary school to enable you to study whatever you like at university. That was the idea. And in short, it's Abitur, it's a Latin name. Anyway, so what I wanted to get at really was to say that none of us actually got um, our final qualifications in New Zealand, but at least the three of you spent time in the New Zealand university system and actually you taught there as well. So... How did your experience actually dealing with other education systems, both school and university, then influence your university career teaching in New Zealand? Well, I, I would say that in between the time I studied my undergraduate degree at Victoria University and, and the time that I came back as a lecturer, a senior lecturer in education, it had changed considerably. I, I mean, one thing that had changed was the proportion of young people that went to university when i went through in the middle 1980s it was about it was under 10% of the the population who obtained university degrees by the time i was teaching there it was around 30% mm. and it's a, a complete fiction to think that you can actually maintain the same standards and more than triple the the proportion of 
young people going through. And, and so I, I wasn't going to re- reveal, Michael, that you're considerably older than the rest of us. Ah, uh, yes. But uh, you've given yeah. it away there now. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, so I... I've, I and in but fact, that's I was, another factor, actually. I, wa- I was around the university for a long before that because my father was a mathematician for his whole career at Victoria. And I used to play in the stairwells and lifts in the, in the Rankin-Brown building before it became the library where the mathematics department was at that, that time. I remember when what is now the hub was a motorcycle parking area. And I also remember the university open days and they were wonderful when I was a child. It was an intellectual fairground. All the academics would get out their toys. The computer science people would set up these big mainframe computers with games for us to play and the chemistry people would get out their little vats of of liquid nitrogen, which we could dip leaves into and snap in half. It, it was just a wonderful day of intellectual exploration and, and fun. That's a good point, by the way. You mentioned your dad was already at university. Yes. Professor? Well, he was a, he was a senior lecturer senior in senior lecturer. mathematics. So you had yeah. a family background in higher education. Yes. So you weren't the first to go to a higher school and university, so it was in the family. That's true. Which was unusual at the time, of course. Yes, yes. I mean, he was the first in his family, but certainly he was part of a big increase in the university in the 1950s and 60s. He he became an academic, well, probably in the early 1960s. And at that time, they were taking on a whole lot more staff. So he and many of his colleagues who went through the honours degree and then did PhDs in various places came back to be academic staff. And for you guys, did you have family backgrounds in higher education? Not particularly. My dad had done a research fellowship at Yale, but he was a, a oh, doctor. Just at Yale. So, yeah. yeah. So. Okay. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> so you come from a from an educated background. Yeah, and I think, you know, I don't want to speak for, for everyone here, but, you know, I came from a family of books and, mm-hmm. you know, that was hugely, hugely important. You get that, that leg up without even setting foot in a in a classroom. Yeah. Right. And yeah. You? yeah, my mother always encouraged reading quite heavily. My mother and father met at the, a place called the University of New Brunswick, which is in the, the province of New Brunswick in Canada, in Maritime Canada, in case people don't know where it is. And that's kind of like my family, my Canadian family's university, because my sister went there, my cousins went there, my uncle and aunt also went there and met there. And that's a very, that's a very kind of normal Canadian university. It's actually the oldest one in Canada. Uh, but other than that, it's, it's fairly normal North American university. So, yeah, that's kind of, I, I guess, what I thought of as university for most of my life. And, and then when I was doing Oxford entrance, of course, it was extremely, it's a, this extremely intense experience. And m- my mother going to New Brunswick from Montreal, it was more like, oh, you can actually go to New Brunswick. You can go to University of New Brunswick a year before you can in Quebec. So a lot of people would go down to the University of New Brunswick basically to party for a year. Mm-hmm. So it's just a very different experience for me. And That's, I guess, how I would answer your question about what I think now of the New Zealand university system. It's just that I guess my experience at Oxford in particular was very intense. And I think often in the European education system, especially at the sort of top end of it, the more prestigious ends of it, it can be quite pressured. And I think sometimes they expect too much of students. However, in New Zealand and in Canada, I think you almost have the opposite problem. I think that here, some of the students are very good, but there's a long tail of students who haven't been prepared that well at school and what's worse is that the incentives at university don't really exist to kind of encourage them to to reach for excellence I mean, of course not everybody is going to get the top grades yeah but it's nice if you have kind of some incentives and i think one, one thing i noticed uh, which was really interesting is that 
when I was at Oxford, and I think this is the case for a lot of British universities, everybody in their final years is mad worrying about what kind of degree am I going to get? Am I going to get a 1-1? Am I going to get a 2-2? Am I going to get a Desmond? A 2-2? Two, two, you know, or am I going to get a third? A uh, gentleman's uh, third. A gentleman's third. You know, and, and here it, doesn't, it seems like unless you do honours, you, you come out of a New Zealand university and nobody asks that at all. It doesn't seem to be any kind of gradation. And again, so I, I think that there's a sweet spot between a very sort of over-pressurized environment, which asks too much of young people, and an environment which really sort of doesn't invite them to kind of fulfill their potential. And I think that's the danger in New Zealand. just want to say, that's the difference between us. I mean, I don't, don't come from a background with a university-educated family. I was the first one to go, and I was actually quite apprehensive going to university because I didn't know what to expect because I was the first in my family and there was no history of that. So I, it, it was different. I was actually the first to go to grammar school and there was no one there actually who could have told me anything about that either. So f for me, that was different. Anyway, what I really wanted to get at was since you had an education ideal probably from your upbringing, what did school then do to you and what idea of education did you have? Well, at school, secondary school at any rate, my, my main memory is of being very bored. There were, there were exceptions to that, but by and large, I found things very slow and I, ha I struggled to maintain motivation in the face of what, that. What did you expect from school? What did your parents expect from school? Oh, well, I expected, I mean, again, the, the, the cultural capital thing that you you allude to was definitely there there was very little doubt in my mind that I was headed for university and and I don't think my parents saw things differently either had I said actually I wanted I want to become a plumber I'm sure they would have been supportive but it, it wasn't in our cultural mm. in the culture of my family to contemplate that and and I never really questioned the idea that I was headed to university. And in fact, I'm glad that I, I did go to university because I think for me that was the right path. I, I don't think it is for everybody and I think there are many valid paths in life. But for me, that was definitely an aspiration and an expectation Was the same for you, Matthew? Same for me. I think yeah, that sort of cultural expectation that you're going to go to the university is a luxury in, in many respects. But I agree with Michael wholeheartedly in that you know, not everyone is best suited to go into university. It's not, you know, the best use of their time. I was very bookish <laughs> since I was quite young. I couldn't imagine doing very well <laughs> if I wasn't in a university or a think tank environment. So fortunate in that respect. Yeah, and I guess it was the same for me. I mean, I went to an independent school, and so, you know, independent schools in England at least tend to do better academically, and I think there was an expectation that you would go on to university. There was a lot of pressure that if you're doing well at school, you should get into Oxford or Cambridge. It was very much like, you know, you wouldn't consider it anywhere else. It was quite traditional in that sense, too. But I think that in elementary school in Canada, I definitely had the feeling that Michael was describing that I wasn't challenged enough, except perhaps with the French. Where I had so much French, and I found that quite challenging at the time, and I'm glad that, that I had that. One of the major things I, I took away from elementary school in Canada. And then in England, it, it was maybe not an extremely intellectual environment, but it was the kind of school where things like literature were valued. And so I got very intensely into that, and I got very intensely into things like Latin and Greek. And then I started to notice that my father, who comes from a reasonably poor background in Canada, I think he wanted me to take the school and use it to sort of get ahead, I mean, like what every parent wants. And I think at a certain point he became a little bit 
worried about me going so deeply into these intellectual things. And he kept saying, well, you know, you need to know how to work a car and do carpentry, all, the, all these things that he loved to do. So that was an interesting element of class. And I think that definitely one feature of the European education system too is that there's a lot of these old-fashioned things like classics have a lot of prestige in them still. And so that can lead you down a certain path, which it did in my case. I'm not saying I regret it, but that's just an interesting feature of it. And if I asked all three of you now to define what you think education actually means and what it is, is it in a Kantian enlightenment sense an escape path from immaturity or is it something completely different? How would you define what education means? There might be a difference between what it actually means in our current context and what I might think it should mean. Well, I'm asking about ideals here. So my ideal would be that it should steep young people in the knowledge of the past in order to provide a springboard into the future. So I think it's very important to give everybody, irrespective of whether they're destined for an academic career, a trades career, an entrepreneurial career, what, whatever it might be, to steep them in as much cultural knowledge as possible to give them a, a grounding in, in what has come before. And I also think there's a very important dimension by which we have to concentrate much more than we do on preparing people to be good democratic citizens. And what, what I mean by that is, is learning to contest ideas well, not just learning about how the instruments of government work, more importantly, giving them a value base, which is not a natural thing for human beings, to be less tribal in their thinking and to be more open to new ideas, to argue in good faith and then to take part in democratic processes. Matthew. I agree with Michael and you know for me that sounds like such an 18th century concept. Um, my mind is always going back to the 18th century but it's about inculcating civic virtue. Yes you're you're reading the classics, you're reading quite difficult philosophy but that philosophy and those classic texts purpose towards being a good citizen within a democratic society. So I think that's you know, a really central part of, of what it means to be educated. What I would just add is I think an education gives you the intellectual resources to make the most of your talents. And again, that's a very democratic thing. And I think, you know, when I read Michael's work on education or Breyer's work, the thing that really kind of pangs in my heart is that we, through not teaching our students as well as we could or not having the right policies in, in place, we close down talent. And yeah, that's that's a real shame. But I think, yeah, education fundamentally opens that up and allows people to take themselves from a, one context and, and shift to another one entirely. And that's really precious. Mm -hmm. So connecting young people with the past and preparing them for the future, is that what you think, James? Yeah, I mean, I have in mind the 19th century English critic Matthew Arnold's phrase about how education should introduce young people to the best that has been said and thought in the world. It's a classic phrase that people always remember when they talk about the value of the humanities. But I actually think it applies to education across the board because that's also in a way what's going on when you teach the sciences. The whole point is to, to take this young person and, and to say, all this cultural evolution has happened before you. So you don't have to recapitulate everything. You don't have to think of Newton's ideas yourself or Darwin's ideas yourself. We're going to give you a kind of summary package of, you know, the greatest discoveries that mankind has actually achieved. And also, you know, a smattering of the, 
the most impressive artworks and works of poetry and expose you to all these great things. And then, then you'll be in a position where you kind of make your mind up what you like and what you dislike. And of course, other things go along with it, like some practical skills, some moral education. Mm. But those things too, like I say, they, they, they're in a sense historical because they're, they're, they're telling to young people things that we've already learned as a, as a, as a human species. Mm. Uh, what I find interesting, actually, listening to you guys, you have a slightly different approach to education compared to me because mm -hmm. I come from a different culture, a different background. It doesn't even translate properly. Education means is something different than the German equivalent Bildung. Bildung probably already sounds a bit like to build something, and that's roughly what it also means in Germany. It's the idea of character formation, of trying to build on something and trying to discover what young people are good at. So the idea of building goes back to one of my heroes, Wilhelm von Humboldt, in the late 18th, early 19th century, Prussian education minister for a year. Actually, he started the modern German education system, and the idea was to bring Bildung education to every young person in his kingdom and to help people discover what they're good at and to introduce them to all sorts of different things, but always with this very personal aspect of trying to figure out what are the characteristics of the person, what can we build, what can we build on, what can we build up, not just a conveyance of education and knowledge, but really to have a character formation process. And I think this has really shaped the German education system for the last 200 years. So and what about it, about the German system addresses that issue of character? How, how do they approach that? I think actually looking at Humboldt's ideal, it was not so much the employability. Mm. It, it was not the final outcome that you are employable as a whatever. It was actually just the formation of the person and that they become employable in the process is almost a side product. But that's not the goal. Mm. The goal is to really steep them in their culture and to, to trigger something deep within them, yeah. a, a thirst for knowledge. Yes. So you introduce them to all sorts of things and have a well-rounded personality, ideally, in the end. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I agree with that. I think, you know, I'm speaking more to the, the tertiary sector and that's probably just reflected by the fact that I've, I've come out of that quite recently. But as you go downstream, you know, especially at school, we have those teachers that open worlds up to us whether that's in an English class or whatever, and, and it's often the teachers that allow us to see the things that we're really good at. <laughs> you know, I couldn't build anything, <laughs> but I was very good at uh, reading books and, and writing essays, and I was lucky to get that kind of, that nod in that direction very early on. But yeah, that character formation, I think, does go back to what Michael was saying earlier about, you know, being prepared as a good citizen, but that's probably more of a university type of... By the way, one of the things that would have appealed to you, James, from Humboldt's aspect, he was always going back to ancient Greece. Yeah, that's right. Can I say something about moral education? Because yes. I, I really liked it. The idea really appealed to me, especially when I was at this English school, which was also a Christian school, an Anglican school, so it had the spiritual aspect. So you'd be reading literature in class, then you'd be going to chapel, they'd always be talking about sort of educating the whole man and all that. And I love that. The only uh, thing is I've developed a certain wariness of it now because I think there are dangers in that approach too. Yep. And one of the dangers is that, is that it becomes too prescriptive, especially if you're thinking of a Christian school where it might, it might exclude other perspectives. But there are other ideologies. I mean, there are ideologies today, for example, in the education system which are quite powerful. And it, it, sometimes it struck me that you can get to the place we are now where, where I think you know, universities, this ideology is so powerful, 
partly because in the past we've also had universities with this more old-fashioned sort of Christian ideology. So I, I think that, you know, people in civil society should be able to found schools and have religious schools or non-religious schools or whatever. But I'm, I'm slightly wary of uh, these sort of stronger ideas of spiritual content because they can be they can be distorted so easily. Yeah, and to just add on to that, I mean, I really take strongly from Michael's work that one of the big flaws in the New Zealand education system is the curriculum is not specific, and then we have all these vague oh, competen- competencies let's specified. Let's get to that a bit later. <laughs> yeah, um, I, by I the think, way, I think there's, there's one other thing I'd, I'd like to say yeah. at this point as well, because it, I think listeners could take what we're saying to be a bit elitist, as, as if, I mean, we've all got PhDs, and, and we've, we've been very successful in the education system, and, and at least three of us have had this cultural background of an expectation that's where we're headed, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of intellectual support and our childhoods to get there and I I think we have to acknowledge that I mean uh, thinking about what education should be another thing to me it should be is a circuit breaker on intergenerational poverty and disadvantage yeah Uh, and so that's what it's been for me yes I mean I don't I don't come from from a poor background come from a middle class background but not from a background of great academic education yeah and for me, that was definitely a pathway that wouldn't have been open to me without it. Indeed. And I think we have to acknowledge the role of that cultural capital in making this knowledge accessible. Matthew, you said you came from a home of books. So, so did I and, and, and so did James. And, and and that is an immense support. So to me, the education system needs to recognise a lack of equality that children start off with in terms of that access to knowledge and and try to do something about it what it should not do is accept that and then give different content to different children on on the basis that some of them aren't up to the i mean that to me is the real elitism if we if we make an assumption that the kind of cultural enrichment that we ultimately all got from education you know it really should be available to all and that means definitely putting more resources towards children who don't have the same privilege in their background that we do. That's exactly what I meant. So coming from a background where none of this was present, uh, many of the choices I made in life I wouldn't have had if I hadn't been introduced to them. Yes. And not necessarily by my parents, although they made sure I had a lot of books to read, Mm. but certainly by my teachers at school. And I... I think I probably draw more on the things I learned at school than at anything I did at university afterwards because I got a really rich grounding. I think that enabled me to do all sorts of things afterwards. And by the way, the one thing I still want to mention before we get into the practicalities of New Zealand's education system, we talked a lot about the social sciences, and that's unsurprising because that's where we all come from. But I think the natural sciences matter a lot too, and I think uh, getting a decent grounding at school probably prepares you a lot for life as well. There's no doubt about it. And actually, you know, the, the branch of psychology that I, I studied really falls into the the natural sciences more than the social sciences, the science of human information processing, cognitive psychology, 
It's quite mathematical. It makes a lot of reference to biology. It uses a lot of modeling techniques. It's very statistical. It's just of one of those traps that we fall into when we discuss education policy because most discussions on education policy happen between social scientists. Yes. And the natural sciences are always kind of forgotten. Yeah, we've got a canon of knowledge and you need to know your Shakespeare and ancient Greece and Rome and history. You, you need we to know your physics and your we, chemistry exactly, as well. We, but we do not talk about that enough, I think, in education discussions. Yes. Well, I, I mean, I was very fortunate to have a, a mathematician for a father because math- mathematics is actually a beautiful way to learn to think clearly. And that, to me, is one of its, its huge strengths. And I, I always enjoyed it. And I was lucky to be able to enjoy it because he made sure that I kept up. It's, it's not easy for many people because it is a steep hierarchy of learning. And I think mathematics and fairly much to the same extent physics and almost as much chemistry have that steep hierarchy of learning yep. that, that can make them very inaccessible unless they're taught very carefully and well. Out of curiosity, did you learn much science? Well, a little bit, but I, one thing I want to add, actually, in my definition of education, which was pretty vague before and it's probably still vague, but one thing I want to add is that I think that a proper education, a good education, actually involves students doing things that they wouldn't otherwise be inclined to do. Exactly, right? yes. So, And I think that the English education system was both good and bad at this. It was good in some ways because they had, at least at my school, a pretty old-fashioned approach to, like, you need to learn this, and you will, you know, and that's it. On the other hand, in England, you do GCSEs, General Certificate of Secondary Education, when you're about 16, and then after that, you choose only three or four A-levels. So I was able to choose the A-levels that I wanted to do. So I did Greek, Latin, Spanish, and English, because I loved languages, I loved literature, and I thought, great, I can give up maths. And then, of course, of course, your math teachers at the time say, you're going to regret this, and then years later... You know, I'm studying political science at Stanford, and it's all heavily mathematical because, as Michael says, maths is a beautifully helpful, uh, interesting way of exploring the world. And then I'm thinking, oh, I should have actually worked harder at my math. So I think that, again, it's a balance. You don't want to kind of completely wear kids down and uh, force feed them things, but you need to expose them to a certain body of knowledge, uh, you know, as best you can. Matthew. Yeah, I had quite a, a poor experience with science in the New Zealand school system, you know, the teachers could figure out that I had an aptitude for history and, and English. And I remember one of the teachers saying, oh, well, that's, you know, that's a virtual subject. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't, you know, I didn't have the natural ability for biology or or maths. And I didn't like going into class. I found it quite stressful. And it's actually only been here at the initiative and talking to Michael about, you know, why that was structurally in terms of how I was taught but I feel like there wasn't enough emphasis within the New Zealand education system on these these basic things, yes, and it was quite hodgepodge. Approaching mathematics is is a challenge because it is intimidating in the sense of that that steep hierarchy of learning. If it's made accessible, it's, it's a beautiful thing. But you know, all too many people fall by the wayside with it because it isn't taught in, a, in an appropriately structured way, and, and that's a tragedy to me. You know, for many years I taught research methods to mid-career teachers and some of them would literally break down in tears at the thought of having to study basic statistics. Mm. And, I, that, yeah. and that, you know, one could laugh about that, but it's actually a tragedy because they've been carrying around this fear and loathing for decades and thinking they're no good at something and thinking, actually, I'm a bit dumb when it comes to that. And it's not true. It's that it hasn't been taught in a way that made it accessible. The pathway hasn't been there to allow them to succeed. Actually, another question about your school careers. How qualified were your teachers? How good were they? 
Well, I, I was lucky. As, as I said, my secondary school was a very liberal school. It didn't place a great emphasis on obedience and rules. There, there were, of course, school rules, but in general, there was a lot of latitude given to us to push the boundaries. And I, I think that was actually good for me. And, and, you know, perhaps because of the demographic that went to that school, we could get away with that without things going badly wrong. But the quality of the academic education was actually very high, especially in mathematics and science. I don't think I had a bad maths teacher at school, and almost all of the science teachers were good too. And they were passionate and qualified? Well, yes, they were. I mean, I, I remember a physics teacher. He, he, I don't think he had a formal degree. He, he had been a mining engineer, and he was quite elderly at the time, but he knew his physics backwards, and he brought it to life in a beautiful way. I had a mathematics teacher who was a disaffected Latin teacher. She, she'd had, unfortunately, James will lament this, my first year at Onslow College was the last year in which Latin was taught at the school, and she then went on to be a, a mathematics teacher. And I, I don't think she loved that, but she, she was good at it and did a good job. So, yeah, I, w I was fortunate with my teachers by and large. You um, like many New Zealanders, I had a, a variety of, a variety. of teachers. Oh, that's um, very diplomatic. So I had some teachers that, you know, a good teacher is, is simply the best. They, they're great people. But I also had some, some teachers who you don't quite realise it at the time when you're 15, 16, mm. but now reflecting back on it, I think, I don't believe that they necessarily had the subject expertise, so... Without naming names, I had one history teacher and we would just sort of get YouTube videos put up and quite a sort of chaotic classroom and that would happen in, in other subject areas as well. So a bit of a mixed bag, if I'm being brutally honest. Again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sound privileged and spoiled, but I had excellent teachers at my school in England and I think that one of the features of that European educational world is that there was much less of a boundary between academia and high school teaching. So yep. like some of my classics teachers had doctorates. One of my favorite ones, Mr. Brooke, he actually had come second in a competition to get an Oxford fellowship. But it didn't seem like it was a step down in a way. It was just like in that world, in that milieu, it was sort of like, well, I didn't get this lectureship at Oxford, so I'll go teach at a school instead. And you know, I, he was very much, I thought of him as the equal. I still think of him as the equal of a lot of the university classes that I studied with later at places like Stanford. Well, that's interesting you mentioned it because it was exactly the same experience I had. So I think about a third of my teachers at grammar school had PhDs and they were extremely well qualified and they were widely interested. So I remember we had a chemistry teacher, Dr. Loomer, and a biology teacher, Dr. Kump. The two actually loved talking philosophy. And they actually organized trips to the university for us to listen to philosophers. They liked discussing all sorts of things. And Dr. Blumer was actually fluent in Latin as well, even though he was a chemistry teacher. But actually, he joined as a doctor. He had a medical doctor. And he was practicing as a psychiatrist before. So we had weirdly qualified teachers, yeah. but highly qualified teachers. I yeah. think one of the features of the, that part of the European education system is that things like Latin and Greek and the traditional humanities have such high prestige. But yes. of course... They don't necessarily get that prestige from the market economy. So these yeah. people, they're not going to. So if you're a chemist or a physics a physicist, you might go into industry. But then there's this pool of people who are all very well educated in Greek or Latin or French or history, 
And th that's not seen as a bad thing, but I'm just saying that their world is both the universities and the schools. And all of our teachers had at least a master's degree in the subjects they were teaching, yeah. which is unusual probably by New Zealand standards. But that was the norm and that was a requirement. And we had weird people with weird careers entering the teaching profession. My maths teacher, Dr. Müller, also my physics teacher, joined us after a stint at IBM and swapped the private sector career for a teaching career, and why not? So we had many teachers like that from strange backgrounds, but weirdly qualified. And for me, it was actually growing up in a mini kind of university. Yeah, the, the qualifications are, of course, important. You need teachers to have the core knowledge that they're trying to teach. They also need to know how to teach it. That's a, a different skill than knowing something. In fact, experts can sometimes forget what it's like to be a novice, and, mm. and that can be fatal to, to teaching well. But I think there's a third thing as well, especially when it comes to addressing the differences in cultural capital I was talking about. So for children and young people approaching a subject for the first time and not seeing it as something that is familiar to them, that, that resonates with their family's background, it needs to be made clear to them why it's worth studying and, and what's in it for them. And so that idea of arousing the curiosity about something is an, a very important and almost an ineffable quality that teachers need. And I, I'm not sure that that can be trained. I think it, it's almost a, a, a quality that they have to bring to it themselves. So if I sum up the conversation so far, we all come from backgrounds where we experience high quality teaching where we had a stimulating school career, probably continued at university, and where the school career actually triggered something in us, where we wanted to learn a bit more, and where we then specialized in different fields, and where we eventually all ended up at the New Zealand Initiative. Yeah, uh, what, can I just add one yeah. thing in, which, we, which you mentioned anyway, but just to bring it out. Yes. The, the the, there was a high prestige for the teaching profession in yes. a certain way. There was not only high prestige, but even a certain type of, I don't know, mystery or something to it. And I think that not just in New Zealand, that's something that's been lost. And I think that's one of the reasons where it doesn't seem now so much the case that if someone has a, an academic career in the university that doesn't quite take off, they'll think, oh, I can just move, as it were, horizontally to, into mm. a school position. I think people, the way the teaching profession is viewed is different. I think that's a shame. Yeah, so I just wanted to summarize really where we all come from. Yeah. Because I think it really shapes our views of the education system and our expectations as well. Yeah. And so with these expectations now, let's talk about the state of education in New Zealand, both at school level and at university level. And the good thing is actually you all have experiences from within the system. I mean, Michael, obviously, you are our main researcher on education questions for the primary and secondary school system. But of course, you've got your tertiary education experience as well from Vic. And, and you both taught or teach still, James, in the university system. So I'd just like to ask you directly, your experiences at all stages of the New Zealand education system, how close do they come to your own upbringing and your experiences and how close do they come to the ideals you still hold of education in New Zealand? And maybe we'd start with you, Matthew. Hmm. So I think practical place to start would be as a postdoc, I'm teaching at the University of Auckland and there were two things that I immediately noticed the first was where the students were arriving with what I'd describe as a pretty hodgepodge background in history. 
So, you know, they'd studied a little bit of the Nazis and then a little bit of civil rights, but they didn't have that sort of sense of continuity. So it was a little right. bit like a, you know, a tapas menu, like have one dish over here and another dish over there. Do you think they had a good grasp of the discipline of history? No, but I, I don't think you can get to the grasping the discipline of history without that broad chronology. Of knowledge, yes. Exactly. So I was looking at the New Zealand history curriculum today and one of the, I think it was the big ideas that they stress was it's all about power. And for me, history is all about change over time. That's yes. what historians are in the business of doing. And if you explore change over time, maybe you'll understand how certain power dynamics operate in certain contexts, but you know, that's not always that's not always the case. So I always found that weird actually looking at how they do history in New Zealand. Nothing builds on previous stuff. It actually I and I have to say, modules. that's not new. I mean, I, I studied history for the old c school certificate when I was 15. And it was a series of disconnected topics. That's uh, weird. I it found this weird. weird. And, and, and they, they seem a bit random. I mean, why did they have a topic on the American social welfare system well, after World War II? For they're example? totally random because yeah. someone at the Ministry of Education is picking that. No, I, I still have my old history books at home from grammar school and four volumes. They were called Zeiten und Menschen, so Times and People, and really starting with the ancient civilizations and finishing up basically after World War II, roughly. That's what I expected history to be like when I studied it. And so Unfortunately, when, and it was It was compulsory. We had history mm. classes from year five. We started with the ancient civilizations and then, you know, of course, Greece and Rome and so on and Middle Ages. And we worked our way through. And by the year, by year 10, we had finished this, basically, and we arrived in modern times. Mm. But we would have covered everything in between in yeah. a chronological right. order. I think in a lot of the English-speaking countries, the educational establishment decided at a certain point that the really important thing about history is to teach people methodology, how to read a source. And I think they even took it to the extent that, you know, in some ways all periods are equal when it comes to looking at sources and teaching kids how to look at sources. And I think that, you know, there are good there are benefits of that approach, but it also makes the curriculum much less knowledge rich because then you necessarily yeah. leave out a lot of history and you end up and having high school history students. in a vacuum. Yeah, you end up having high school students do something reasonably intense in terms of the methodological approach on maybe Nazi Germany or, or the French Revolution or whatever it is. But then they come out and they're 18 and they have no idea what the Spanish Inquisition is or they don't know what the Industrial Revolution is or all these important topics they've just missed. And, and I think Matthew's what you uh, experience as well at university, Matthew. Yeah, I, I want to uh, reaffirm what James is saying. Uh, I worked in London for a year in education technology and on the weekends I would moonlight as a history tutor and I would work with students from a variety of backgrounds and... You know, they were all curious and, and, and talented and, and motivated. But the one thing that they really hated were these source-based exercises. And the way that they were set up, it was so arbitrary. And you know, I was, I'd done a master's, I was about to do a PhD, and I found these exercises bloody hard. Mm. And I couldn't really see the point. You know, much better to, to teach the students the actual history. Yeah, well, the point you made before, how, how can you come at the discipline without the, the overview of knowledge? And and I think that goes for every discipline. It goes for science as yeah. well. So, I mean, people talk about 
science education at primary school, and and it's dreadful because most primary teachers don't know very much science, if any. But in the end, primary school students and even secondary students aren't going to learn a lot about science as a discipline and its and its deep methodologies and its philosophy. Certainly, at primary school. Children should be learning about the natural world. They should be learning about species and evolution and dinosaurs and planets and stars and all of these. The basics. Yeah. And because it's engaging. Yeah. They find interest in these things and that engages their minds and also they gain the knowledge. And then that can be deepened at secondary school into understanding some theories like atomic theory and Newton's theories of, of, of mechanics and so on. Mm. But I, I don't think it's until tertiary level that they're really, most people, I mean, there are exceptions, but mo- most students are really prepared for the discipline because I, I agree with you, you need that knowledge base first. I agree. I did my first historiography slash philosophy of history paper second year of university. Mm. And if I had done that earlier, it, it would have been a waste of time. We had a bit of fun quite early in the conversation with the German title of the school leaving certificate. Yes. And I'll just remind you, it's the Zeugnis der Allgemeinen Hochschulreife, which means the certificate showing that you are mature enough for university, mm-hmm. literally. So question for you, Matthew. Your students you were dealing with at Auckland Uni in history, were they mature enough actually to deal with university degree history? Mature in what sense? Mature in the sense that they would have the necessary toolkit from school to deal with your history classes? Not especially. You know, I think they they had maturity more generally, but the way they had been taught history at school didn't equip them as well as I would have liked. Well, um, what were the things missing? So to go back to what we just chatted about, there was that lack of broad chronology and sense of change over time. And then I also found... You know, the way they'd been taught was quite highly politicised. And it's, uh, I, yeah, I, noticed, I noticed this very strongly coming back to New Zealand as historians are taught to go backwards, not forwards. And in New Zealand, the debate is always the other way around. And I had to work really hard to open them up to other contexts, other times and other places, because that's what historians do. So I would give a lecture on Empire and Oceania and I would start with Cook's voyages, you know, these old kind of dusty 18th century texts and they come armed with, uh, you know, all this this knowledge that is, is being churned through, you know, newspapers and so on and so forth. But when you actually sit them down with the text from the 18th century... <laughs> and and bring them into that period and and what it was like their eyes open up but i but i found that very challenging in the new zealand context i didn't find that the case in the uk for instance and james did you feel or do you still feel that your students are mature enough to be at university and are they prepared enough from their school times to be at university? Yeah, I, mean, I think they're mature in the general social sense. I mean, I don't have any problem with classroom discipline or anything like that. I mean, as I said before, I think that some of the best students are very, very good. And you, you notice that at a place like Victoria University of Wellington more because one pleasant feature of the New Zealand education system is that it's not hierarchical like in England. So 
in England, you know, the best students would go to Oxford or Cambridge or Warwick or Durham or wherever. And then, you know, you go to sort of a lower a university, lower down the supposed pecking order and you'd get the, the lower ability students. Whereas here you get them all together. So, so, the, so the top, you know, one or 2% of students are superb. Top th- a third of students in, in New Zealand thinking about my big first year ancient civ classes, they're also pretty good. But the problem is the bottom third or so, I think, they're really not prepared even for what I would consider basic university study. They, they can't really write essays. So what's I mean, missing? Writing, writing like basic writing skills. Writing. I mean, writing. that's what I noticed. Yeah. I don't do mathematical stuff with first years, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not qualified to. Um, I don't know what math teachers would say about that. But definitely in my experience, they can't really write an essay. They don't know how to format an essay. They don't know how to reference an essay. They just have problems on the, on the, on the level of basic sentences. There's also that just... level. Oh, yes. oh, yeah, definitely. Basic grammar. Oh, very much so. I mean, this is why I, I have a sort of running joke with a colleague that we should have a university entrance system in New Zealand, which is very simple, which is that you just have a side of A4 and you get students to fill it in with writing. And anybody who can fill a page of A4 without making an obvious grammatical error can get into university. And we think that that would actually, it would actually, you know, disqualify about a third of the incoming uh, group. So a lot of them get sent to student learning for you know basic help with writing. And it's not like I'm beating up on them. In a way, it's not their fault. They just haven't been prepared. But it is a little bit shocking. It's hard to compare because I haven't, I, I've taught a bit at Stanford. I haven't taught at a sort of average or sort of you know slightly lower than average UK university. So it might be a similar picture there. But it isn't, it isn't great. And I think that in general, I think there's a little bit of a lack of ambition in the New Zealand university system. I will say, on the other hand, there are things that I, that I immensely like about teaching in, in a New Zealand university. I mean, one of them is just that it's extremely unpretentious. It's extremely yeah. non-hierarchical in ways that I like. I mean, the students call me James. I feel like I can talk to the students very naturally. Uh, I feel like there's a lack of snobbery. I mean, I think that was, that this is a problem, for example, with, with Oxford was it was very much like, oh, you should know this. You know, the teaching was a little bit like, if you can't translate that Greek, you should know how. And it's like, well, I'm here so that you'll help me. You know? So there's none of that. And that's, all, that's very, very helpful. But I, I think on the other hand, again, the, it's just a little bit too far the other way that I had the student once in a class and he'd done all the things I'd asked him to do for this class. And there's one more essay to write. And he just hadn't handed it in this essay. And I happened to see him on the street about two or three days after the deadline. And I just said, hey, uh, nice to see you. How are you doing? Uh, w- what about the essay? And he just looks at me and said, nah, mate, it's not happening. <laughs> I don't know. It was a typical of the down-to-earthness of, new, of Kiwis, which well, I kind of like. Yeah. He was very honest. But I just, I just think, well, <laughs> you know, just have a little bit more, you know, get up and get at him kind of attitude. Just write the essay. You'll pass the, you know, probably you'll pass the course. And I think that that's a little bit troubling. That there's the, and I think also that, you know, as I said before, it's not just a matter of mindset. It's also that the system doesn't seem to have the right incentives in it just to, give kids a little bit more of a push to help them kind of fulfill their uh, potential. Yeah. I think, I think you're, you're really right about the lack of pretension in the New Zealand system. And that, that was the case when I went through as an undergraduate as well, even though it was, a, you know, in some sense, a more elite group of students, it was a much smaller proportion of the population. But there was always an intellectually welcoming attitude. And the... But your cohort was probably able to write a page A4. Oh, I would say so. It was a a different level of of preparedness that we came in with because we were, you know, perhaps the the most prepared 8% rather than the most prepared 35% as it is now. But you would echo James's observation on lack of writing ability. Oh, I mean, it's beyond 
way beyond not making a, a grammatical error on a page of A4. You struggle to find a coherent sentence in many, many students' writing. There, there's no beginning, no middle, no end. The, the sentences contradict one another when you can even make sense of them. I mean, you know, there are, as James said, very good students who have learned to write well, and there's, there's many who have problems with their writing that you can help them with. But there are also many who one, as a course lecturer, can't do much about because you just don't have time or necessarily the skill to address that level of problem in writing. Just naively asked, will they still all get degrees in the end? Not all of them, but too many of them. If it, so what I mean by that is that there's a, a large amount of pressure on academics to make sure that people don't fail even if they're really not up to it. And in your experience, is the university then downgrading its expectations? Oh, there's, no, there's no question about yeah. it. The, the meaning of a degree now is far lower than, than the meaning was 35 years ago. And how does it compare internationally? That's a more difficult question. I, I taught at Melbourne University more than 20 years ago now, and I have to say, even though... I mean, these students had been through expensive private education very often so it was the Australian system is much less egalitarian than the New Zealand system and as what it is something to applaud about our system that it, it tries to make itself accessible to, to many people but but it comes even even well even in the, at Melbourne University the, the, I was teaching undergraduate psychology many of them were hopeless at writing. And actually, having been through private systems, in some ways they were less well prepared. I mean, I think one of the nice things about the secondary school I went to, it was this liberal environment. And part of that was that you actually had to be a bit self-motivated. You were not hounded and you weren't kind of coached to the nth degree. You had to show a bit of initiative to, to get through. And But if you did and you got into university, then you were set up for the independence that university asked of you whereas the private school educated students at at melbourne university very often had been coached heavily to do well in the exams in order to get into the university but they hadn't learned that independence and, the, and that self-discipline that, that's required in a in a truly quality education and tertiary education environment so you described the process of dumbing down requirements How does that actually materialize in practice in, in your experience, James? Well, I think a lot of this is about incentives. I mean, the system is designed in a certain way. And one of the ways it's designed is just that we get funding according to how many students we have. So there's this huge pressure to put bums on seats and, you know, keep student numbers up. And so the assumption is made, I think, across the university that students are more likely to take our courses if we give out good grades. I don't think it's it's that explicit in people's minds or that cynical. And then you manufacture causes that they will end up with good grades. Well, I mean, again, I don't think it's that explicit or that cynical that people are literally sitting down and saying we need to make our courses easier so students pass them and we get more bums on seats. But definitely, as I say, all the incentives are working in that direction so that if you go for a really challenging course and they are, oh, I'm going to raise standards here, then you'll get punished and your colleagues will look at you and they won't say, great that you raised standards or that you, you held the line. They'll they certainly say, won't. They'll say, you lost us 100 students this year, you know, and our, and our, our program might get cut. You know, that's, and and that's pressure the will reality. be brought directly to bear. I mean, it, yeah. if one was to uphold 1985 standards now, then we would fail upwards of 50% of the students, probably more like 70% of the students in every course. And 
that wouldn't go down well with the university hierarchy. You would certainly be censured for it. Uh, it's the same with grade inflation, which is hopefully a topic we can look into uh, more formally at some point. But if you took the attitude, again, I'm going to hold the line and I'm going to sort of grade people harder and give out fewer A's, nobody in the system would thank you because nobody's incentivized to that's, thank you. That's exactly you, right. The same thing would probably occur, which is that you get fewer students and also you'd be able to boast about you wouldn't be able to boast about having good students because the way they measure the quality of the students is often just looking at their grades. Yeah, so, so it's such so, a good point. Sorry, finish yeah, your no, point. No, I'm just, I'm just yeah. going to finish off by saying it, I'm not against having some market incentives in the, in the education system. I think in a lot of ways it's a good thing to have different programs compete in certain ways, but I think that the universities have to think really hard about what incentives are in there, and yes. at the moment I think they're not... They're perverse incentives in, in a lot of cases. They don't actually, they're not actually conducive to educational quality. They're conducive rather to encouraging academics to, or encouraging programs to put out these signals. These, and the signals we put out, the signals we're chasing are high student numbers, people receiving a lot of A's, but there's no check on the educational quality following those signals. We've actually seen the, this problem of grade inflation play out in real time over the last 10 years in internal assessment for NCEA. So NCEA has a large component of internal assessment and what that means is that students complete work during the year which is graded by their own teachers. And there is a moderation system run by NZQA but it has very few teeth because the grade stands even if the moderator disagrees with it so it's merely feedback for next time around. And what we've seen is an absolute explosion in the percentage of grades at excellence level, the highest grade available in NCEA, such that as, as many as 70% of the grades in some standards have been at excellence level. So obviously excellence really ceases to mean anything when 70% of the candidates get it. And it is a question of incentives. Everybody wants to see students do well. Obviously the students would like to get excellence. Their teachers who are grading their work would like them to get excellence. NZQA and the ministry wants, want to see the rate of qualification achievement increase. So th even though the moderators are, are you know, pushing back a bit, it's not nearly enough to counter it. And the parents, of course, will put pressure on the schools and so on. So you actually need very strong technical systems to control grade inflation. It certainly does not control itself. Exactly. But it's a process that starts early on at school. So we recently got evidence from a new pilot study on numeracy and literacy, documenting that about a third of each year would fail if we just applied a basic literacy and numeracy test. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, we send more than half of a year's cohort to university where we now have to downgrade our expectations and where we offer them multiple choice questions to somehow get them through the university years and to equip them with a certificate at the end. And then we're surprised that our standards are going down. And all of this contrasts mightily with the lofty education ideals we discussed earlier. Yeah. So yeah. it must be an immense frustration for people like you working in the system, actually coming yeah. from an, an education background where you grew up with a deep appreciation of knowledge and of education and of methods, and then to find yourself in a system that doesn't even live up to this in the slightest. It makes me immensely sad. And, yeah. and, and it's, it's, you know, uh, the irony is that a lot of academics now, there's a, there's a sort of ideology of social justice in play. And we haven't even touched on the politics that, that the university 
the ideological grip that it's that it's in now that's a whole different catastrophe but the the idea of social justice to me is best addressed through a quality education and making sure that first of all schools prepare people as best they can for life some of them will go to university but it needn't be a high proportion we shouldn't see university as being an elite thing it's there for people who will take positions of intellectual leadership but you also need people in positions of business leadership we need people with practical skills one should never downplay the 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 status of a good plumber or builder or or artist you know there, there are lots of paths in life that are all valid and all should be celebrated but we serve no good purpose at all by just degrading the, the meaning of a university degree. I see you nodding, Matthew. I couldn't say it better. <laughs> Can I just add something about grade inflation? Because I, I want to make clear what I was saying, what I'm not saying. I mean, I, I actually think my colleagues, especially in classics, they take education extremely seriously. They have very high standards. They definitely want to help students understand the classical world and, and the world in general. So it's not that they're not serious enough in their approach. On the contrary, they're very mm. serious in the approach. It's more that, as I say, it's about these incentives. It's that the great inflation problem, Michael kind of made this point, but I want to bring it out again. It doesn't stop until there's some kind of third-party enforcer. And what I mean by that is there needs to be some group that's above the universities that sort of says to them, you know, this is the number of A's you can give out or that moderates marking. And we do do a little bit of moderation at certain levels for honors and master's degrees and, and upward with PhDs as well. You have an external examiner. But a lot of the marking is internal. And one thing they did do well at Oxford, just by sort of historical happenstance, was because the Oxford and Cambridge are federations of colleges, what would happen is that you would get taught by a tutor, a so-called tutor, which other people would call a professor, in your college. And then you would go, at the end of your degree, you would do a set of exams in the Central University building. And then those exams would be graded anonymously. I mean, you would be anonymous, and they'd be graded by two random academics from the university. So there was no, there was nobody marking their own students' work, basically. Or if they were, they, they didn't know it, and they were also working a whole bunch of other students' work. And I think the problem with a lot of these systems where there's so much internal grading is that, yes, on the whole, academics are, are honest and they're trying to do a good job, but there's always this tendency to kind of like your, like your own students and want them to succeed. Sure. And that is something that adds to, right. to great inflation. So I want to go back to the starting point of the discussion, and that was a quote by Immanuel Kant, that enlightenment is the liberation of a self-inflected immaturity, and education probably is the tool for that. Now, if you say that education standards are dropping dramatically and that actually you cannot expect students to really know anything or even string a sentence together, what does this mean for the Great Enlightenment project which started maybe two, about 250 years ago? Are we now entering a phase of de-enlightenment or are we entering a new dark age? Because the education doesn't seem to be there anymore, so we're falling back into an age, an era of self-imposed immaturity. The optimistic answer to that is that while the university as we know it may be in decline and perhaps irre irrevocable decline, I, I tragically think that may be so, there are other avenues opening up through technology. I mean, I think, for example, of the, the University of Austin, which has recently committed itself to a, a pretty classical view of what a university ought to be, And I, I think at the moment that's an online venture. In the future it may become bricks and mortar. I, I think there, there is a hope that 
as it were, refugees from the old system will, will set up something new. And over time, that may grow and thrive. Well, we're talking about a very small part of the system, but the bulk of the system is in decline. I think, I think the system as we know it is possibly fa- fatally wounded, shall we say. What does this mean for the Enlightenment project? Well, it's in peril. And I, I think we can, we can see that across many institutions, not just education. Yeah, I mean, I think that in terms of sheer educational standards, are we heading to a, to a new dark age? I mean, probably not, because we forget just how low the levels of literacy were in the dark age. I don't think that, you know, we're going to go back to sort of like 10 uh, or 20%. Sorry, if I can just interject, that's a really important point. In Immanuel Kant's time, well under 5% yes. of the general population could even yeah. read. But, 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 but I, I do agree with you that it's a big problem, and it's a big problem for countries like New Zealand and Canada especially, who have developed these educational establishments which are in many ways kind of hostile to the to the evidence-based methods that actually help people learn and hostile to reform and that's a that's a big problem for those countries in terms of their competitiveness and in industry and it's also a big problem for the quality of life in those countries because I, I I also think this is this is maybe going to sound elitist too but it, it applies just you know equally strongly or even more strongly to people from underprivileged backgrounds. The education actually is, a, is an aspect of quality of life. Like knowing where, you know, what the stars are and, you know, you know, and having read the odd Shakespeare poem, maybe not all of them, but like one or two sonnets or something, that's part of the beauty of life, being able to explore these things. And if you can't even string a sentence together, all those things just become very difficult. Mm-hmm. But can I just, I, I just want to add this other thing about the, the de-enlightenment. I, I think it is a real risk in a different sense. And that is the subject that's really the elephant in the room we haven't talked about so much. And that is just the presence of ideology on college campuses nowadays, including in New Zealand. And earlier when you asked a question about, you know, what was different from my previous educational experience in here, I would say that when I was at an Anglican boarding school in England, which was part of the Anglican church, and they made us go to chapel three or four times a week, they were much less insistent on ideology than some of the universities nowadays. Of course, you know, it was a Christian school, and they made us go to chapel. But I remember in chapel, the chaplain's sermons would very often shy away from any doctrinal content because he kind of knew that most of us didn't necessarily believe it, you know, all of it. So it would just be about emotional intelligence and that kind of thing and helping people get on and, and stuff like that. And, you know, they didn't force us to get confirmed or anything. It was always very much like, yeah, we're in the Christian tradition, but we're not going to force it on you. And I think that the, the atmosphere on college campuses now, not with everything, but with a, f- a few key areas of life, views to do with gender and race and things like that, you very much have the sense that if you cross certain lines, you're going to get in big trouble. And I think that's a horrific thing for educational institutions where people are meant to be able to explore ideas. Matthew. I want to have a crack at this post-enlightenment idea. I think, as a historian, I'd say it's too early to say. You know, Don't historians <laughs> always say that? <laughs> exactly. But, Cop you know, the, the signs are, are not great, Um you know, for the reasons that James has just alluded, a lot of the ideological thrust, um, you know, that's occurring within the university system is antithetical to uh, many of the, um, you know, the core tenets of enlightenment. But I think you'd be unwise to bet against human curiosity. And above all, you know, the the guiding principle of enlightenment was about self-improvement. And things may look bad now, but I think you'd be foolish to, to bet against that, that core human instinct that Enlightenment philosophers and writers were so articulate about drawing out. Our current university system 
may burn out. It certainly looks set on on going down that direction. Self-destruction. But there's nothing to say that new institutions can't be built. Um, you know, look at the transformative impact of digital technologies. Things are in, in flux and we're grasping around for our geolocators, but I think too premature just yet uh, to declare the end of enlightenment. But the prognosis is not great and, and we need to get pretty serious about I, these core, I actually think core the, things. The, the most important thing to focus on is younger children now. What, the, talking about this ideological threat, you know, and, and I'm thinking here of Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianov's book, Coddling of the American Mind, people are rendered susceptible to these ideologies when they're not given enough psychological resilience as young children. So I think the primary school system does need to focus on preparing them, not just with knowledge. Knowledge is very important. Literacy and numeracy are very important. But so is the ability to think about an idea, to disagree with somebody in good faith, to understand that you can learn from a disagreement. Those kinds of core principles of academic discourse need to be put in place. And, you know, there, there can also be improvements in the way parents perhaps approach parenting with a less risk-averse uh, approach than has been popular in the last 20 years or so. Yeah, to, yeah. to build on that, I uh, had the great fortune of being quite close to a very prominent historian of the Enlightenment. He actually wrote the Oxford Short History. <laughs> I don't know if it was called What is Enlightenment, but, but the Enlightenment. And I was having a conversation with him one day, and he'd worked on 18th century Scottish philosophy and Neapolitan history and he would always impress on you just how much people had to struggle in the past to make good arguments and for them, for the 18th century philosophers, the currency was good argument and it should be for us as well and we've lost sight of that and um, I think, you know, if we want to rekindle that spirit, people in university departments need to, to, to push for that, to advocate for that freedom of inquiry, encourage people to put their ideas out, to make arguments. Yeah. Right, so this is another thing that Kent mentions in his great essay that Oliver talked about is this Latin phrase, sapere aude, which originally comes from a, one of the odes of Horace, but it just means dare to know. And that's really the essence of the Enlightenment, I think, is just this fearless willingness to, to try and find out what's really going on. And, you know, sacred conventions be damned. You just try and find out what, what, what the truth really is. And I think that Matthew's correct that there's almost a natural urge in humankind to do this and to look for things. And so that's the hope I have. I mean, I think uh, I was hopeful. I still am a little bit hopeful that we can reform the universities. I'm less hopeful now than I was a few years ago just because, you know, institutions like the Heterodox Academy haven't been as successful as, as I thought they might. But if the universities can't be reformed, there are all these alternative methods now of getting information out and getting opinions out, podcasting, of course, and YouTube and all these things. And, okay, they don't look like much now, but there's also institutions forming around these things, different institutions getting an educational arm. And I think one way or the other, you know, uh, freedom of inquiry is going to get out there and it's going to be a, a thing and it has to be a thing. And the question is just whether the universities choose to join that or whether they get left behind. So let's perhaps finish on this relatively optimistic note that when 
things get dark, somebody needs to switch on the light. And maybe it's the universities themselves actually rediscovering their roots. Maybe it's a new generation of students rebelling, actually. I mean, as students often do, but this time rebelling for a good cause. Mm. Freedom of speech, inquiry, uh, enlightenment, maybe rediscovering the joys of classical liberalism. Because Indeed, but as I said, in order for that to happen, they need to be prepared with a certain psychological resilience. Yes. But if students rebel against the zeitgeist... Yes. I mean, I, this I, would be the good time for, for it, them to do it now. It, it really would. But that's what students used to always do. They oh, yeah. would push against In which case, authority figures. Let us just hope for someone to switch on the light and lead us back to Enlightenment 2.0 against all the dark forces that are around us and which we explored in this podcast. And I think it was an enlightening conversation. I thank you all for that. I look forward to the University of the New Zealand Initiative. Well, uh, if, if you find us a few billionaire funders, we can probably make that happen. But in and the our meantime, first class is in <coughs> classical Greek, right, Oliver? Of course. <laughs> we'll make that mandatory for you, James. Oh, we've got this, re- we got this recorded. This is great. Yeah, yeah. And for you, we'll have something on the history of colonialism as well. And infrastructure. Infrastructure. Course, well. Infrastructure. Yeah, suddenly become very involved in that. Wonderful. And in which case, I'll probably go back to unfair competition law. Okay. <laughs> we've covered it all. Thank you very much, gentlemen. And hopefully, you found this in a enlightening conversation. Excellent. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you. Thank you, Oliver.